Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here on the podcast, we have one simple mission to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes, whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who is just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, their state, the country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guest's favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Taking CausePods out to the West Coast, we are chatting with Jenny Lisk. She's the host and creator of the Widowed Parent Podcast. And as you can imagine what the Widowed Parent Podcast is all about, it's for the guiding of the murky waters for those who are parenting after the loss of a spouse. And Jenny, we are delighted to have you here on CausePods. And I'm sure it's been some time, but of course, you know, recognizing the topic, we are very, very sorry for your loss. Well, thank you, Matthew. And thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And I think it's really cool what you're doing to try to bring attention to various causes that different podcasters are working on. So thank you. You are quite, quite welcome. And I'm sure it's going to be a little tough, although I'm sure you've talked about this plenty. But just take us back to what happened in your life and sort of that evolution from the tragedy that struck all the way to deciding that you were going to create resources and guides and help other folks facing the same situation. Yeah. Well, that's a big question. How much time do we have here? <laughs> I think all we the could time die. in the world. No one's going anywhere, right? <laughs> I think we could talk about that all day. So I'll just back up. It was actually five years ago this month, which is oh, wow. really strange to think about is when everything started. And it was the 1st of May in 2015. And my husband, Dennis, it was just like, hey, I'm feeling a little dizzy. Nothing dramatic, nothing Let's rush to the emergency room. There's a big problem. Just, oh, I'm feeling a little dizzy. And it was the weirdest thing. And then he started just showing these little signs of cognitive confusion, where, for example, his very first conversation, we talked all about how he should make this doctor's appointment because he was feeling dizzy. And then I went out to get food. I came back and I'm like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And he's like, oh, well, I'm doing okay. But, you know, I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. And I looked at him and I was like, wait you know, we just talked about that 20 minutes ago. And he said, we did. And that's where I was like, okay, this something is weird. But he was mostly normal. I kept watching because then I'm like, am I imagining things? Because, you know, then he goes back to being totally normal again. I'm like, okay, this is really weird. Fast forward 10 days later, I ended up calling his doctor and saying, look, he needs to get in there sooner because there's something really wrong here thinking that the doctor would say, we just changed this one medication he was on that had this potential side effect. Well, no, the doctor says, we need an MRI of your brain. And at the end of the MRI, you know, normally they say, go home, we'll call you the next day or two days, whatever. They said, actually, can you go back upstairs? The doctor wants to see you right now. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is, but that is not normal and that is not good. This is not how they do things when it's a good news deal, right? Now, that's an agonizing elevator ride or like whatever that trip was to that office has got to be just eating you up inside. Yeah. So we go back upstairs and this is just the general internal medicine, right? This is like we went in, there's this weird problem. Let's talk to the doctor, right? And he says, well, 
I don't know what's wrong with your brain, but I think there's something really wrong with it. I don't want to scare you. It might be glioblastoma. Meanwhile, I'm like, what's glioblastoma? Never heard of it, right? <laughs> and he said, I think you should know what you might be dealing with, and you need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. Ooh. Yeah. So we go home, we Google glioblastoma, and we're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Basically, it's brain cancer. And it is a very aggressive form of brain cancer where a tumor can spring up from very small, almost nothing, to big and impactful in a matter of weeks. Wow. Yeah. And you might have heard of it because it's actually what John McCain died of a year or so ago, two years ago. Sure. And Bo Biden died of it a few years back as well. Interestingly, he actually died of the, Bo Biden of this brain cancer right around the time my husband was diagnosed. So there was a little bit of awareness about what was going on. Well, yeah, but not until like a few weeks later. I was you know, reading all in the news about it. But at the time, the doctor mentioned, what's this? Anyway, we go to the neurosurgeon and he says, yeah, we need to do surgery tomorrow, the next day. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I'm used to things like you go in for knee surgery and like, okay, make an appointment and it's a six weeks out or something. He's like, no, no, we're doing brain surgery tomorrow. So to make a long story short... The objective was to try to remove as much as they could and also biopsy it to determine if it was cancer. At that point, we just knew that it was a tumor. They couldn't, as it turns out, remove any of it, just enough to get a biopsy. You might hope that if you had cancer, you'd have a discrete mass that you could cut around and remove. And it wasn't that kind of tumor. It was more like woven throughout all the fabric of his brain, so it wasn't really removable. <sighs> yeah. So that began eight months then of this cancer journey, basically from the beginning, because of those, you know, those early cognitive signs that I mentioned where he was confused about some things, he just got more and more confused. And from the beginning, like as soon as he had that first surgery, he was never himself again. And he was sick for about eight months. And we had, gosh, I could so many ER visits, so many hospital stays. He was at a nursing facility for a while. He was home for a while, all these things, ultimately on hospice at home, and then died uh, about eight months later. So it was January of 2016. Oh, I'm so sorry. And that, and this whole time, too, you have two young kids, too, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, when he was diagnosed, they were eight and 10, and they had birthdays while he was six. So they were nine and 11 when he died, and now they're 13 and 15. I got to ask, you said it's going to be coming up on five years. How is everybody holding up? Mm, it's hard. It's a really difficult. You don't go into parenting expecting to become the only parent of your kids, right? And as a kid growing up, you don't expect that one of your parents is not going to be around for maybe they'll be there for half of your childhood and then that's all. I mean, I know I certainly growing up, I mean, you just kind of expect that your parents are alive. So it's been tough. It's actually the reason that I got involved in this podcast, because I found that early on, this question of, I'm a widowed parent, how do I do this? This wasn't a job, quote unquote, that I expected to have, right? I had a parenting partner. What do I do? And how do I do this in a way that these kids are not, obviously, they're going to be affected, and it's going to be part of their story and part of their lives forever, how does this not totally ruin them? And who can even help me if I have questions or is this a grief issue or is this a normal teenage issue or a normal kid issue or how do I do this or that or who can I even ask these questions of? 
And that's really what I was struggling with and seeing a gap because I think that there are a lot of great resources for adults and their grief. And I'm not saying that it's easy by any means. I'm just saying that there are some really good resources, whether it's individual therapists, whether it's programs like there's actually something called Camp Widow, believe it or not, which is terrific. I've been to it. It's not camping. It's at the, I don't know, the Hilton or something. It's more like a conference for widows, but it's really cool. And there's really great Facebook groups. There are lots of options for adults for support. There's books. There's good books. And then for children, there are some really terrific centers and programs in all different cities around the country, other countries too, that are running kids and family grief programs in their cities and doing terrific work. And even with that, I felt like as a parent, there's a big gap. Even if my kid goes to one of those grief programs once or twice a month, maybe like a peer grief group, and then there's something called Camp Aaron, which is a grief camp they could go to in the summer for a few days. And if they went to a therapist every single week, so if they did all those things, that's a lot of grief work. But I added this up the other day because I was like, you know what? Even if they did all that stuff, there's still 300 other days in the year where it's all on me, the parent, to figure out what am I supposed to do? It's not like I can say go to this grief group twice a month and do activities and talk to other grieving kids. And those are all good things. It still doesn't help me as a parent. What do I do? And that's where I found this gap. So I'm curious. I want to get to this question in a few minutes about making that connection from looking for resources to creating your own. But I'm curious as to you talk about these camps slash conferences, you talk about these support groups and these centers, and you mentioned online resources. But I have to imagine today in a world that we are living in where you can't go outside, where you can't get together in person with people it's got to be really hard for folks who are maybe just starting to go through this. And of course, sadly, there are more people who are getting into this situation right now because of what we are living through. What do you say to a person who's facing this now, whether it happened pre-COVID or during COVID, that you can't get out of the house for these resources? Mm, yeah. Well, it's an excellent point. And you're right that most of these grief groups and programs have been very in-person based. That's typically how they've been very successful. I got to tell you, they're all, not all, many, many of them right now are actually, have already implemented or are starting to implement virtual groups, virtual programming. And it's really been terrific. A lot of these groups are members of the National Alliance for Grieving Children, and I'm also a member of the organization. And they are all sharing with each other, okay, we normally do our programs this way. How do we run a teen group virtually? How do we run a kids group virtually? How do we do a group for parents virtually or young adults? So it's really terrific. And a lot of them are being really creative in how they're doing this and also putting into place how and when do we switch back later to in-person and do we have to move back and forth between virtual and in-person if we have another wave of the pandemic and things like that. So I think that, you know, it's interesting. I heard from a listener the other day who was assuming that she couldn't find a group during this quarantine time. And I wrote back and I said, actually, you know what? Here's a list. They are all doing, not all, a lot of them are doing these programs. And some of them actually are accepting people regardless of location. Some you need to be in their local area. 
so that then when they open back up, you can go into their center. But other ones will take anyone. So I would say don't give up. Don't assume that there's nothing right now. Don't assume that you're totally stuck getting by without support because there are some good options out there. Yeah, that's good to know. So you started by saying you were trying to find the right resources and there was a gap there. So how did you go from, I don't see what I'm looking for to... I'm going to create what's, what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a really good question. I went to go to Amazon and I type in, where's the book for the widowed parents? And I'm like, wait, there's no book. I need the book. And I'm like, okay, well, okay, I should write the book. And maybe that's a leap. I don't know. But <laughs> I, uh, you know, I thought about it and I spent a lot of time thinking, should I go back to school and like become a therapist or should I go back to school and become a parenting expert or some of those kind of routes? And then I thought, no. Really what I want to do is I recognize that there are so many people doing excellent work on all these different pieces of the puzzle. And now listeners can't see that I'm kind of waving my hands here, right? You got all (laughs) these pieces and there's someone doing this piece and that piece and the anxiety piece and the little kids piece and the trauma piece and the young adults piece and like all this stuff. But what I was seeing was, how do you pull all this together? What's the landscape? What's the overview? What do I, as a widowed parent, what needs to even be on my radar screen when I'm thinking about how I do this? And what do I need to be on the lookout for? What are some basic principles I need to keep in mind as I'm figuring out how to do this? So I realized that a podcast would be a really accessible way to do this, that I could go out and have these conversations with this expert and that expert and the other expert and share those discussions with people just like me, other widowed parents all around the world, and record them. You know, it's not that hard to record it, throw it up somewhere. I mean, I make it sound a little easy. As you know, there are a million pieces (laughs) to do a good job of it. But (laughs) theoretically, it seemed like a very manageable thing to say, let me go have these conversations, and then let me share them. And by the way, I mentioned interviewing various experts, and that's part of it, because there are experts in different pieces and including people who have different resources or programs or camps or whatever. But the other two categories of people that I interview have been really interesting. So one is widowed parents who are kind of down the path a little ways and can share their reflections and their journey, not as an expert in from a professional sense, but more like there's a real feeling that I've gotten that I hear from listeners all the time that they feel like they are alone, like they are the only widowed parent that they know in their school community, their neighborhood, their circles. They don't know anybody else who is in their 30s or in their 40s and and widowed and have little kids or teenagers or the only people they know who are widowed are older and their kids are grown and gone. But the thing is, when you start talking to people, you realize there's a lot of us out there. It's really shocking, actually, how many there are. In fact, one of the really interesting things I learned, I interviewed Judy's house, which is in Denver, and they have done this research, and it's called the Childhood Bereavement Estimation Model, which is a long way of saying that they're studying how big of a problem is this. And what they found out is that one in 14 kids, by the time they reach 18 years old, one in 14 kids will have lost either a parent or a sibling. Wow. That's like yeah. two kids in the average classroom. Yeah, I know, right? That's and crazy. and that's not counting grandparents and aunts and uncles and close friends. And it's only counting those immediate parents and siblings, immediate family members. 
And most of those, by the way, are parents. As uh, Siblings is a much smaller percentage of those kids. And so it's really incredible. And so when you start talking to people, you realize that, you know, no, if you're a widowed parent, you're not alone. You may not have met other people yet, but they're out there. And so interviewing, I hear from listeners all the time that hearing from other widowed parents, even if their journey is a little different or different issues have come up for them, that feeling that I'm not alone is really helpful to people. And then the other piece, the other category is people who are now adults. And when they were a kid, they lost a parent. And those people have been so interesting to talk to. And I'm so glad they've been willing to share their stories because, you know, I don't know what it's like to lose a parent, right? Right. My kids and I, we all lost the same person, but I lost a spouse and they lost a parent. So we lost a different relationship to that exact same human being. Right. I mean, not to say that one is more important or less important or greater, but like parents are often our heroes and our spouses are often our friends. It's a different relationship, even though, like you said, it's it's the same person. And I imagine those people are also interesting just because they have that much more experience of going through this if they've been dealing with it since they were children. I wonder when you first started to interview these different people, the experts and the the other widowed parents, was it for your own curiosity? Were you really thinking about sharing this information or was it really just for your own discovery? Well, the nice thing about it is it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Um, That's accurate. And I didn't start and talk to people and then say, oh, maybe I should share. I started this with the objective of I'm going to talk to these people in order to share it. And the thing that works out really well, the thing actually was probably the biggest blocker in getting started was answering the question for myself of why me? Why should I host this podcast? Why am I the right person to host this? Thinking initially, well, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, I don't run a grief program somewhere. You wouldn't look at me and say, that's a grief expert. And I realized, and I think I felt like, well, if I'm not that, then I'm not the right person to host the show. And finally, I realized that I was looking at it completely backwards, that the reason I was the right person to host the show was because I was exactly not one of those people, because I am a widowed parent and I can stand in place of my listeners and ask questions as a widowed parent on their behalf, either you know from things I've heard from talking to them or people write to me all the time, or sometimes I'm asking about my own experience, but then I can say, you know, well, one of the things I know people struggle with sometimes is X. And I know that if I'm struggling with it, somebody else is too. So I think it's a it's a fair question. It is something we talk about that a lot on this show and, and other things that I do in the podcasting space where it's that if you approach that topic with true natural curiosity, it, selfishly, and I don't say that in a bad way, but because it is important to you, you will wind up asking the questions that will be important to your audience because you're not attacking it as I'm the expert trying to sound like the smartest person in the room. You are trying to learn. And if you yes. are in the middle of learning, then everybody who is listening is going on that same learning journey with you, which is what can make a show like yours and so many others so powerful. 
Mm, yeah, that's exactly right. I approach it as I am learning from this person, whatever this topic is. Maybe they've written a book. Maybe they've done something else. And I do quite a lot of preparation, actually. If they've read a book, I always read it so that I can try to stand in place of my listeners and think, what would they want to know? You know this person's body of work, their expertise, what do I and my listeners want to know from them? And then approach the discussion in that way. That's very, very smart. And and I mean, it sounds like you have turned this curiosity into so much more than just that. It seems like this is a full-time thing for you now, or, or do you still have, you know, are you still working for a living? <laughs> no, it is a full-time thing. You're absolutely right. Well, technically, I guess you might say I'm on kind of sabbatical from my real previous job. I actually... I used to work for a large tech company. I spent 20 years in IT. And the last 15 of those, I was remote here on the West Coast. And eventually, a couple of years back, they said, hey, we'd love for you to stay, but you're going to have to move to New York. And I said, mm, no nope. thanks. <laughs> you know, I, as exciting I, I li- as... I lived, in, like I, I worked in New York. I consider myself a New Yorker, so I'm not just poo-pooing on the city remotely. I'm one of them. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I actually love New York, and I'd love to live there someday. This, sadly, would not have been in the city. It would have been out in the suburbs. And But the other really thing is, you know, with my kids being in middle school and high school at the time, it just was not the right time. And I've got all the family support here, my friends, their friends. It just wasn't the right time to make a move like that. So right. They've been through your... enough. They don't need that kind of trauma, too. Yeah, exactly. So I said, you know what? It kind of, the timing kind of worked out. I was still working full-time at that and kicking around ideas on the side, like, I got to do something in this widowed parenting space. What does that look like? How do I do this? And once this whole thing went down at my former employer, I had you know, a little bit of time before I actually had to leave that I could think about getting serious about putting some things in place. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to take a year and see what I can do with this and see what kind of... It might be an interesting year of learning and sharing, and then I'll go back and do something else again, or maybe it'll turn into something interesting. And it's actually been now about a year and a half. Actually, it might be more than a year and a half. It'll be two years in September. It's too much fun, I guess, and too interesting to <laughs> to leave. And I'm working on a couple books and things, and so I'm actually thinking I kind of build out that way too. Gotcha. I'm curious then, well, you have a background in tech, so I guess some of the stuff wasn't that challenging, putting together a website and, and putting together the digital footprint would probably came somewhat naturally to you. But when you decided to take the podcast venture, what were some of those early hurdles or how did you get from, I should start a podcast to, all right, now I've got a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good question. You might say that the tech work that I did before was not really practical at all as far as these purposes. It was a large corporation working on internal financial systems and I was a project manager. So I wasn't doing anything that translated practically speaking into this, these technical challenges, but I guess you could say I was like, I'm tech friendly, you know? So then let me apologize ahead of time because this is something (laughs) that I've gotten in my career a lot. I did digital marketing or like I was quote, good with a computer. So I was automatically labeled like the IT person in the many offices (laughs) that I worked in. Like, oh, you're good with a computer. What's going on here? I don't know. Your hard drive is on file. I cannot solve that for you. Yes, I know where the print button is and how to log you into Facebook, but that Uh doesn't mean I'm IT. So Uh I apologize for doing that same projection on you. No, no, not at all. I get that question all the time. I do think that I'm 
because of all that experience, I'm interested in learning and I'm willing to learn. Learning a new tech challenge doesn't freak me out or something. I did a number of things because there's so many pieces, as you know, to running a successful podcast. I was in a mastermind actually with a guy who has a podcast and was able to ask him a ton of questions. And I also listened to several different podcasts and kind of broke down what they were doing and like, how do they structure it? And do they have an intro and they have an outro and how do they do their music and how do they, you know, and all that. Of course, there's a zillion. I couldn't listen to. I just picked like three that I liked and then kind of looked for what they had in common and thought about what would work for this format. A lot of Googling to find answers, watching tutorials on how to use Audacity to do my editing and things like that. I've just been Googling things today to figure out some stuff. Well, actually, for the book. One of the things that I also, I had never interviewed anybody before. And so I was like, hmm, all right, I need to learn about that piece, too. How should I do that? Because I didn't want to just get on the line with somebody who I knew would be interesting, but not have a plan and just say, okay, hey, tell me about yourself. And then wander all around for 45 minutes or an hour and then be like, okay, thanks. Bye. I wanted to figure out how to do this in a way that would be interesting and useful for the listeners and to really draw out whatever it is that the person had to share with us. So I thought about like, oh, okay, how am I going to learn how to interview? And I thought, well, who is the best interviewer that I can think of? Terry Gross. Mm, good choice. So, yeah, so I Googled yeah. how to interview like Terry Gross. <laughs> <laughs> See, Google's been a very handy piece of my journey here. And I found a couple of things. I found somebody had written a blog post where they had broken down what they thought she did effectively. So I studied that. But then I think what was most useful was there was a really long New York Times profile of her that she had been interviewed for it and they did a long, you know, her whole career. And she talked about how she approaches her guests in her interviews and how she prepares and how she thinks about structuring all these things. And I thought, gosh, you know, if I can learn, whatever she's doing is obviously working. So let me kind of steal as much as I can that works in my context. And one of the ideas that I got from her, actually, she will often have a guest start out the interview by reading a passage if they've written a book or something you know piece of work that they've she'll have them read it kind of to set the stage she picks out something that's relevant to the theme she wants to draw out and has them read it and I thought you know what that is a great idea and it doesn't work for all my guests not all my guests have written material that I can ask them to read from like that but a lot of them do that's one of the things I do to kind of set that theme in the beginning and then I also studied up on storytelling, how I read some of the moth storyteller people, how do you tell a good story? And I thought about, all right, well, in some cases, I'm asking people to share their story. So how can I structure the interview and the discussion in such a way that it comes out setting the stage and then there's an inciting incident and then it wraps up like all these things. And so kind of think about the structure that way. So it's not just kind of like throwing things at the wall and then hanging up the phone and hoping that it came out okay. All right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what you've learned and what some other advice you can share for other folks who are jumping into the space. But before we started recording, we had actually, you told me we actually had a connection and that you knew one of our previous guests who was on a couple episodes ago, Effie Parks, mm -hmm. and that that actually was part of your podcast. And you want to just quickly share and give Effie a quick uh, shout out? Sure. Yeah, I love what she's doing. It's such a small world. So my husband worked with her mother-in-law and father-in-law 
many, many years ago, back when we actually, when I first met him, he was working in the same organization that they were. So fast forward to now, we've kind of kept in touch off and on. And Effie was going to be getting her podcast started. I think it was last fall, maybe. And so her mother-in-law reached out and put us in touch so that we could talk. She could ask some questions. And because I think that she had listened to some of my episodes and thought that maybe I could share some tips with her. So yeah, I think she's doing a terrific job with such an important topic with the rare genetic disease that her son has and using another good mechanism or another good platform, having a podcast to share, to do those interviews, to share those stories and those journeys and hardships and resources and ideas with her audience. So yeah, I think that's terrific. We got quite the response to Effie's episode, which I'm sure we're going to get for for this one as well. So you did all this research, all this Googling, all this studying of other people. So what's your number one that you haven't mentioned, like number one tip for good interviews? I think preparation is key. And I say this, and the next thing I'm going to say is the prep work is killing me. Like, (laughs) (laughs) So you kind of have to be prepared. I feel like... To deliver a really good discussion, I want to be super prepared with if the person's written a book, I read it. Like I said, if they've given a TED Talk, if they've done X, Y, or Z, I want to know so that I can think through and really draw out what is my audience going to want to know from this. And I feel like if I haven't studied their work, I'm not necessarily going to... I might totally miss something that's really useful to my audience. And so... Usually when I'm asking questions, I already know the answer. I pretend like I don't because I want it to be like I'm learning. But if they've written this somewhere and I've read it, but my listeners haven't read it, I'm asking the question for a specific reason to draw out a certain point or whatever. So I feel like doing the prep work to be familiar enough with their work to have a really good discussion really has been key. But like I said, it is killing me. It takes a lot of time especially if someone has books. And I do experiment with if I have widowed parents that I'm interviewing, or if I have people who lost a parent when they're a child that I'm interviewing, I do have a standard set of questions, two different standard sets, one for each of those audiences that I use as a starting point. Wherever the discussion wanders around, I change it up on the fly. And also, if they have done some other work that's relevant, I'll add in things. So those interviews don't require as much prep, but the kind of the different experts, because they're so one-off, they have a particular topic or a particular resource or a particular expertise, and I kind of have to prepare for those one-offs. So yeah, it is a lot, but I think it is the kind of the secret to making a good discussion, at least for this topic. Yeah. I mean, the respect for being the person who can read the book before every interview, I'm I know there's a lot of podcasters and, and especially cause-based podcasters who are doing this kind of work and it's just one of their tasks and their already overloaded job or all these other things. And so it is hard, but as you can tell, it pays off to be as prepared as you could be. And But honestly, the other thing, like just be a good listener, just be curious. Don't go in there with a preconceived set of what this conversation is going to go to. The best interviewers are the best listeners. And that's something that I think people should also take away from this conversation. I'm going to ask you the usual question after this, but we always like to talk about a charity that our guests want to support and we want to drive some donations, drive some awareness to. You are choosing the National Alliance for Grieving Children, which you mentioned earlier. 
Folks can learn more at childrengrieve.org. We'll put a link directly to their donation page so you can check it out. But just tell us real quickly what they do and why they're such a great organization to support. Yeah, for sure. It's really a terrific organization and it sprung up. It's rather interesting. There have been grief programs in different parts of the country doing work, good work in their localities. And just in the last 20 years, they've been starting to come together as a field to say, hey, we're all doing good work separately. Let's get together and share those best practices and share those resources and share those ideas. And let's all kind of, you know, rise all the tide and rising the boats together. You know, everybody can learn from each other. And so the National Alliance for Grieving Children is really the organization then that is the members are primarily these service providers in all the different cities who are providing the programs to the children and to the families who've had those losses of parents and siblings, those kids who are grieving. And I interviewed Vicki Jay, who's the CEO of the National Alliance for Grieving Children, in November, which is actually Children's Grief Awareness Month. So it's terrific. There's a whole month to focus on this as a topic. And she, I think, said it really well when she said that it's much easier to help a grieving child now than it is to fix a potentially broken adult later. That if you don't support kids now, soon in the months and years after they're lost, they're more likely to have bigger challenges later that are harder to solve. And that's really why I think this field is so important and why the work that they're doing is so really terrific and really important to advance it as a field. Because like I said, one in 14 kids by the time they turn 18, it's crazy. And it's a really a big need. And I'm just so glad that if this podcast discussion can help raise any awareness and interest in people and checking that out and potentially supporting it, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So once again, it is childrengrieve.org. We'll have a link to donate directly in there. Folks, please check it out. And as we learned in, in one of our interviews, uh, in fact, I think it was Effie who mentioned this, sometimes it doesn't require huge donations to have an impact that for some of these charities, just getting the numbers of donors, even if it's a dollar, can make a huge difference in what they can do and the other kind of help they can get. So if you have any inclination to give, even a little bit, please, please go out there and do it. So I, I usually end these conversations by asking folks about the biggest challenge to podcasting or the technical stuff. And I'm sure you have great answers to that, but we've done a lot of those. I'm more curious because you are focused so much on groups. You have discussion groups and, and all these different resources to not just give your audience content, but to really connect with them. And so I'm wondering if you can, instead of talking about the podcast part of it, just talk a little bit about the idea of community building and maybe your one or two best pieces of advice for folks starting a podcast that are looking to really activate their listeners more than just record them as downloads. There's a lot of pieces to that question. Let me think here. Um, that part you mentioned about building community, I think in in this case for widowed parents, it has been a really critical piece because, like I was saying before, of the issue of so many widowed parents feeling like they're the only ones because they're the only ones they know in their personal circles. And so building that sense of community has been so important. And I think that some of the ways I've tried to do that, I encourage people to write in 
And they do frequently. I've developed some great email correspondences with listeners in all sorts of places. Sometimes they'll just write in and say, thanks, this is great. Sometimes they'll say a specific episode was really helpful and here's why. Sometimes they'll say, hey, I'd love it if you'd cover this topic or that topic. And actually, that's one of the things that I do proactively say frequently, whether it's in my closing remarks in the show, whether it's in my emails, whether it's in the show notes page, I say, I want to cover the topics and the guests that are going to be useful to you. So write to me. I actually set up like a Google voicemail mailbox to say, Colin, leave a voicemail. Hey, I want to know about this topic or this is my biggest struggle. Actually, one of the questions that I ask that's been really helpful, instead of just saying, what topics do you want? I do ask that. But by asking it like, what is your biggest challenge as a widowed parent right now? That's more actionable. Yeah, because what topics do you want is can be very broad. And you can be like, gosh, I don't know. And I don't know what topics she's covered. And I don't know. But if I say, what is your biggest struggle right now? And then I've got a bunch of people writing and saying, I'm a widowed dad and I have these young kids and I don't know what to do about X, Y, and Z. And then I hear from multiple people, okay, I need to get someone who can talk about widowed dads. And I need to get someone who can talk about widowed parenting when you have a baby or a very young child, because lately I've been covering teenagers or older children, right? It's a different set of issues. So by hearing from listeners that way, I think that's been really helpful in building the sense of community. And I put together a discussion group because a listener just kind of, I think she messaged me and said, this particular discussion was so useful, this episode. And she said, I'd love to talk to other widowed parents about it. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of like a book club. Like we could do kind of like a podcast club and set up like a once a month thing and talk about the recent episodes. So I've been experimenting with that a little bit. So yeah, I mean, looking for ways to get that two-way dialogue going. I also think that it's important to be really active on social media. And I know that's hard too. It's another thing on your plate. But when you post an episode, when you post something and then someone responds, I think it's really important to respond and thank them or respond and ask them a question or whatever it is, instead of just leaving them hanging, if they're nice enough to say, wow, I learned so much from this episode, and then you kind of leave them hanging. That doesn't really build up community and build up a dialogue. So I think it's important to make that effort too. Well, I was just giving that same advice to somebody today that every single like, comment, retweet, reaction, every single one of those matters. And you have to treat each person like they matter to build that sense of engagement and community if they just reply or like or whatever and you just kind of leave them hanging out there they're gonna be like is anybody paying attention to this like why am i bothering if you yeah. if you can't bother to respond to me and so i think that's yeah really really good advice and responding to emails too i have people write to me and say they didn't necessarily think i would respond or they didn't they thought i didn't know if anybody would get it and then i do respond and they're like wow thank you for responding and that really i think helps too And I mean, I guess it just goes back to the saying that like a good podcast is hard work and that's not to scare people from doing it. But what it's meant to say is that if you are not as passionate about it as you can be, where you can commit the time to prep, to respond, to email, to organize, like all those different things, if you're not willing to do this for one listener, it's probably not important to do it right now. Don't treat podcasting like just some cool fad. It's a commitment. And so if you're willing to make that commitment, great, but then go all in and and do all the different things. Well, 
I think like you said, we could probably talk for four hours because <laughs> I think you have some really great insights, some really great ideas. I think you are championing an amazing cause, obviously one that is super personal to you and your family, one that we are extremely sympathetic and empathetic to and wish you nothing but the best. But for anybody out there listening, you can go to widowedparentpodcast.com to check out the show, to check out some of the other amazing resources that Jenny has put together. We are going to have links to some of those resources as well as links directly to the podcast. So you can check it out links to our groups, all the different ways you can get involved. And of course, check out childrengrieve.org make a donation. And if you are someone who is hearing this and is specifically widowed or a child who lost a parent, maybe you can help or maybe you need help. I would implore you to reach out to Jenny and connect and, and find a way to either offer resources or to you know take advantage of the ones that she's putting together for you. She's put together an amazing thing here. And I, I think what she's doing is only going to get better and better. Jenny, it has been such a pleasure to have you here on Call Spots. Thank you again. And hope we can check back in with you in a little bit and learn more about some of the incredible stuff you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Matthew. This has really been great. And it's great to talk with your listeners. And I do want to say, I hope that most of your listeners might not actually need my podcast. I hope that they're not in this position. I also do have some resources on my website for what I call allies. So those friends, those family of people who may be grieving or who are a widowed parent. So I'd encourage you to check out my website as well. Your tips on what to say, what not to say, how to help, all that kind of stuff. So it's not just for people who are widowed, but I think everybody hopefully can find uh, something helpful there. But anyway, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. The pleasure is all ours. And thank you again. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support their favorite efforts. From there, you can also follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And remember, if you have a cause pod and want to join me for an interview, please check out causepods.org and fill out the interview request form. If approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you're doing with the CausePod audience. Thanks again, and see you next time on CausePods. Pods.